Welcome back to Chatting to a Friend. I know, I know, it's been, as they say, a hot minute. But this year has just been so crazy. I don't know about you, but all the things put off from the COVID years uh, just all got rammed into this year and I just got a little behind and so I'm afraid the old podcast had to take a bit of a back seat. But we're back and it's a short season. Some of them were recorded quite some time ago, so apologies uh, to my amazing guests. Uh, I think you're really going to love these. One of them is very topical right now uh, and the rest are just as sort of evergreen as you would hope. And I really hope you enjoy. It's a short season three, but season three it is. Well, she only gone and done it. Victoria Evans made it across the Atlantic on her own in 40 days, 21 hours and one minute. And honestly, this is just the most extraordinary conversation. She ends up nearly in tears. I'm highly emotional. We start off talking about how hard it was, how unbelievably hard it was. We talk about the good times. We talk about what she achieved. We talk about how it felt to cross the finish line and arrive in Barbados and what's happening next after this. If you are in any way fascinated by ocean rowing or big expeditions and what they can do to you and for you, and or if you've been following Tori throughout her row, this is an absolute must listen. I'm so grateful to her for taking the time to chat to me and I really can't wait for you to hear it. Please let me know what you think because oof, it's an absolute belter. Hi Tori, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Fine, thank you. Thank you so much for making the time for me. I can't even begin to imagine how knackered and discombobulated you must feel right now. <laughs> well, I've had a little bit of rest. I've been back four weeks, well, on land for four weeks now, so slowly catching up. But yeah, it's certainly taking time. Oh, so well, tell me, first of all, well, first of all, no, first of all, congratulations. Hello, amazing world record. <laughs> uh, so, so cool. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it feels, still feels surreal to hear it said. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to come on to the details, but tell me, first of all, how are you feeling? Like physically, how are you feeling? Yeah, I'm good. I think my sleep's still a little bit messed up. I still wake up either really early in the morning or during the night. So still a bit fatigued and mm. I have a few physical niggles in that my sole of my foot hurts quite a lot if I walk too far or you know I get backache in my lower back or my hip flexors are very tight but overall I have to say I'm really happy with how my body held up and how how well I felt when I came off the water. Mm. And you know you're saying that you know that hasn't still still hasn't sunk in about the record so how are you feeling mentally about the whole thing yeah I think that's the weird one and I was speaking to some other girls who've rode the ocean this week about that because I, I honestly think the crossing was so stressful and I'm sure we'll get into the nitty-gritty of that but it was mm. there was so much that happened during the crossing that I almost just totally put it out of my mind when I stepped onto land and then I was in Barbados for two weeks which was hectically busy, didn't think about it, you know, had a very busy first week back in London. And it's only really this week as things have calmed down that I've thought about any of it. And 
Mm. And I just think it's going to take so much time to process all of it. You know, the four-year campaign, not even just the crossing. And mm. and it's a very strange expedition to try and process because there's no markers. You know, it's not a, a, a guy described it to me, which is perfect as it's not as though you cycled across Europe and you can pinpoint when you arrived in each country mm. and what things looked like. Mm. And, you know, it's all... I mean, it all looks the same <laughs> fundamentally. Yeah. A lot of it looks yeah. very similar. And you're so tired and so in a state of fatigue at points that it's very difficult to try and piece all that together into a logical order in your head. So it's quite hard to know where to start in trying to process it all. Have you managed to write stuff down? Have you? Did you manage to keep any records when you were out there of day one, day 17, day four and a half you know anything like that or is it simply a case of kind of just tracking the social media that was done in your while you were out there or how, how have you how do you think you will manage to piece it together yeah so my intention is to sit down and write a daily log of what happened and that I didn't write a daily log whilst I was out there but what I did have was I recorded a lot of voice notes of you know updates or things that would happen because I knew I would forget them or I would see them differently in the light of having finished. Or, mm. And I also have my message track. So each day I spoke to the weather router. I very frequently spoke to Barry Hayes, who was doing my social media, I spoke to family, spoke to friends. So what I want to do is collate all of that mm. into a log of when that happened and sort of keep an overview of it. But the voice notes... <laughs> The voice notes are a bit abstract in points. There's one where I've described all the weeks in like colours. Mm. <laughs> I don't know if that's <laughs> something to do with memory and how memory works, but it really felt like that on the water that each week felt to have like a really defined colour, which was based on the weather or the level of wow. you know, mood I had. Or So yeah, I, I don't know how you <laughs> put that concisely into a diary, but that's definitely the plan. And I think that will really help with with going back over it in my own head as well. And so you've managed to listen to your voice notes because I think I've spoken to a few people who've done similar sorts of things and it's taken them a long time to be able to actually listen to what they sounded like. Yeah. Uh, I think it was Jenny Graham I was chatting to, the Round the World Cycling rec World Record holder, and she said it took her a long, long time to listen to her absolutely exhausted bonkers emotional <laughs> warblings to herself <laughs> yeah it's I totally can see why that's the case I've listened to through them once and the thing I found harder was looking at the videos because you can see the conditions and the first time I watched them mm. they made me feel really stressed and I, I just put them back away and didn't go through any of the others because mm. yeah just I, I was looking at them thinking I would hate to be out there and yet that is me in those videos. <laughs> what that I'm watching, like that is me out there. So yeah, I, I think there's an element of that, but that's also part of the, the process, I think, to go through and yeah. face up to what happened. <laughs> yeah, so well, let's go through what happened. Tell me your official time in the end for the crossing. It was 40 days, 21 hours one minute was the final record time. Oh, that seems very neat. And that's extraordinary. And you took a week, is it a week off Kiko Matthews' record? Yeah, just over. Wow. 
extraordinary. And so the very first thing I texted you was, oh my God, that's amazing. Have a bit of FOMO. And you were like, uh, yeah, you totally shouldn't. That was really horrible. (laughs) And you mentioned the stress and you've mentioned the fact, well, I mean, I followed you every step of the way or or of the way. Um, What uh, did you have particularly bad weather? Was it worse than everyone was expecting for you? I, I guess it it's how you define worse, isn't it? Like in rowing terms, it's good weather because it's following wind and it's that helps with boat speed. But I just never envisaged, and I've done a lot of prep, and I would say in comparison to other rowers, I was incredibly well prepared and I've spent a lot mm. of time out on the water. And I just, even I didn't ever envisage that I would have such big weather so consistently Mm. the whole crossing pretty much but particularly in weeks three and four you know I had about 28 knots of wind which is obviously gusting higher than that and huge following seas Mm. but almost to a point where they weren't helpful because they were either pushing me off course or causing issues on the boats or Mm. or just terrifying you know it's yeah and I don't say that lightly I would you know, I knew what I was signing up for, but the conditions were really scary. And they were also of a level where I couldn't rest easily because I couldn't leave the boat to do its own thing, which Mm. meant I was then barely sleeping for a lot of the crossing, which meant I was just so tired. And your Mm. resilience when you're tired is obviously hugely diminished. And that makes Mm. everything also seem more difficult. And your your ability to make decisions is so impaired. How yeah. did you, do you feel like there are times when you didn't make the right decisions? I think I made the right decisions. It's, I think there were times, for example, on one of the days I had a wave come into the cabin, which mm. caused some issues with my electrics and had to bilge the water out of the cabin and then I had, you know, everything soaking away. It's very miserable when you're only living quarters <laughs> covered in yeah. water. And I think that, I mean, it, it was so hard to stop water coming in and out the cabin when I was moving onto or off deck because of the size of the conditions. But you could say that that was potentially avoidable if I'd have been slightly more alert or more aware of it. And I think, I arrived safely in a great time and I achieved the goal I set out to do. So I don't feel as though I made any decisions that didn't, you know, that put me in a position I didn't want to be in. But Mm. yeah, you make silly mistakes. I jumped, there was the first time I cleaned under the boat. I, you tether yourself to the boat and get into the water. Mm. And I was always conscious of not fatiguing to a point where I wouldn't be able to pull myself back out of the water. And I got in one side, cleaned the boat, got back on the boat and then got out the other side of the boat so I could clip myself to the safety rail on the other side. Got back Mm. out of the boat, was very tired, went to bring in the tether line and it was wrapped around my rudder. And I was like, gosh, I'm going to have to get in a third time and pull myself back onto the boat Mm. a third time. And that that was totally avoidable. But equally, never going to have 40 days doing something like that where you never make a single mistake. Yeah. And you said earlier it was uh, stressful and terrifying. And I also saw there was a, you put a post on Instagram just the other day about having to shut down your emotions. Was that easy to do after a while because you were so tired and you had to start going on to sort of survival mode? 
talk us through a little bit about talk me through a bit that a little bit yeah I think you're very focused the only times I found my emotions would really come up is if I spoke to someone I cared about or I read Mm. a note from someone at home and Mm. for example I had a day where my cabin my stone cabin locked me out and I spoke to the boat builders and as soon as I spoke to Lizzie who works there who is our ocean rowing mum for Mm. everyone that works with her I just burst into tears but it was that thing of you know and you're not okay and then someone Mm. asks you if you're not okay (laughs) (laughs) I got so upset and she was like have you had breakfast you sound a bit (laughs) no and I was like no she's like I think you should go and calm down and have some food and I'll call you back when we've got a solution but yeah it was I think you have to you have to close that out so that you're focused and you're level headed and in the main that's okay to manage but there were days where you would just you know I'd have a little shout at the ocean about when it was going to give me a break or <laughs> the relentlessness of it was just so testing and when you say relentless you, you know you said so you have to row and you couldn't rest because the seas were so big and you couldn't leave the boat on its own how many hours were you actually physically rowing you know sort of I mean I suppose it's how long is a piece of string but Mm. it's sort of in an average 24 hours I'd say the first month or so I was rowing about 18 hours a day and maybe getting (sighs) some days I was getting less than two hours sleep in total across the day um there was a period towards the end because I got shingles as well whilst I was out there from fatigue. And then oh my some, God. there was a point towards, and I, and I got COVID, which I didn't talk about publicly. No. But I got COVID about three weeks before I left and oh. was really nervous about whether I'd be able to go and whether I'd be able to perform. And so, um, but there was a period about a month in where I was really exhausted and I started doing two hours on, two hours off, which is like the famous mm. routine for teens. Mm. And it felt like so, such a luxury to take two hours off. Yeah. <laughs> but even within those two hours, you're not sleeping for two hours because I was always no. just not to go off course. Or I think once you've had a period where things are going wrong, you spend the rest of your time catastrophizing about what could go wrong. So mm. I always set an alarm, you know, for 20 or 30 minute intervals to yeah. wake up and just double check everything was on track and then go back to sleep. So you you don't ever have a full sleep cycle or mm. a full, you know, 90 minutes rest. So yeah, it's, it's a lot. And, and I know it sounds like, it might sound like a really stupid question, but do you get used to that? Does your body, I mean, you obviously to a point because you're still not fully able to shut down, shut off and sleep now, but do you ever get used to that waking up every 20, 30 minutes or is it just always, always brutal? I think you get used to it. It's not the same as, I'd say it's not the same as when you feel tired on land. It's sort of like you kick into a different gear. Mm. So I'm not sure if you get used to it or if you just get into the mentality of, well, this is what needs to be done. So Mm -hmm. you perhaps don't think about it within the same you know, remit as you would on land, but it's, yeah, it's always tough. I'd say the fatigue was one of the toughest parts of it because yeah, it's just, you're just so drained. 
And I'm how, making this sound like such a terrible no, end. I'm, I'm, no, no, no. We like the drama. I love the drama because I'm going to ask you about the good bits in a minute. But I want to know, I just, you know, I, I, I'm fascinated by this because how did you, is it a case of, I'm going to use a sort of example of myself in, in, in a, you know, not in any way similar situation, but there are times when you are terrified and scared and tired and broken and you know that there is absolutely nobody else that can get you out of this. And I'm wondering if that's how you managed or if there's part of that, anything to do with that that sort of got you through because you think, well, if I can't get me out of this, the only other option is calling the nearest tanker to lift me out of the water. Yeah, I never ever had a point where I was like, I need to get rescued or I want to get rescued. Mm. But yeah, I had periods where the the conditions were big and they pushed me into the trough of the wave. So you'll then side onto the wave and your auto helm isn't strong enough to pull you out of that. So you yeah. have to go into the aft cabin, take the auto helm off, hand steer yourself back onto course, put your auto helm back on and start rowing again. Ugh. And I would have I would have nights where I would have to do that constantly or I would have to hand steer for periods just to hold a course mm. or it's not that the waking up or the staying awake feels arduous consistently whilst you're doing that. I think it's, you, you have a, I had a period where you'd be like, Oh gosh, could it not just have held tonight? So I could have had some sleep and, and you mm. have to just shift yourself out of that mindset and be like, okay, well this is happening. So how can I make this as good as it can be? You know, what yeah. do I need to wear to make sure I'm warm enough? What do I need to eat to make this as you know, less miserable. What am I going <laughs> yeah. to listen to? What am I going to listen to audio wise to distract me from the monotony of another night on deck, cold, wet, being hit by fish, <laughs> dealing with these conditions. <laughs> so I guess it's an acceptance, how well you are able to just accept what is happening and adjust and, and get on with it. Yeah. I guess, I mean, I think, it, it, I suspect it's one of these things that I could ask you all the questions in the world, but n no one ever knows what it feels like unless you've done it. And and I guess maybe one of the things that, although you can talk to other people that have done it, there's there must be a kind of a, a sort of sense of isolation in that you will never, ever be able to discuss it fully with anybody else because no one else was there. Yeah, completely. And I think if I, you know, I've always said I wanted to do an expedition totally on my own to see how you cope with that and how that process is mentally. Because when I climbed Mont Blanc, there were two other people with me and, mm. you, you know, you're roped in as a three that you're distanced. So you're not really chatting as you're ascending and I really liked having to push in my own head to get myself to the top. And that was what mm. want, made me want to do another endeavor solo. I'm not sure now I would ever want to do something like that on my own again, because the feeling when all you need is rest and you've been awake for 20 hours and you know that rest isn't coming mm. and the feeling of shouldering all of that responsibility and not being able to hand the reins over to anyone else and never being able to fully switch off even when you are resting was a lot for such an extended period of time and and I think now I would want to do that in a team environment just to even if as you know as a pair because 
it was too much probably at points. Mm. And well, l- let let me ask a, a a big positive question. Were there times when it was more amazing than your wildest dreams? Were there any points at which you felt, oh my God, I'm so happy I did this? Yeah. And actually first, you know, if you listen to some messages I was sending back home in the first few weeks, it felt like such a privilege to be there. And it was just so awe-inspiring on an everyday basis. And we so often use those words in a in the context they're not designed for, but they really mm. apply for an ocean row because it really is awesome in its truest sense. And it was mm. beautiful. And you see things that so few people have the opportunity to see, like the stars mm. at night where they come all the way down to the horizon, down to the mm. horizon to the point where some nights I would come out and panic that there was a ship that I'd <laughs> up on my chart and then I'd be like, oh no, that's Mars. <laughs> you know, like, they're so bright and beautiful and you have the whole Milky Way and there were a few nights towards the end where I was like, I need to soak all of this in because I'm not going to see it like this again and I covered up my navigation lights so that it was as dark as I could make it and Mm. sat there and just watched them you know there's so many shooting stars and moments like that or the wildlife that you see you know they're just stunning and even though it's big intimidating conditions the the ocean looks totally different on a daily basis depending on the weather or the wind or so Mm. you see it in all of its forms and it's so beautiful and what kind of wildlife did you see I only saw one whale, which was a shame. I, <laughs> on my, I think it was the first or second week, I was rowing and I heard my oar hit something. And I was like, oh, is that rubbish? Mm-hmm. Is it? And I looked and it was a turtle. I'd managed to tap a turtle uh, on the back with my oar. I was like, <laughs> uh, what are the chances? And then I. Um, <laughs> He's like, hey. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I saw, I saw a shark. That was like the story that every child wants to hear when I do school talks that I saw its fin appear out the water and I immediately <gasps> was like is that a marlin because marlins have been striking ocean rowing boats over the last few years yes uh, and then I saw another fin and I was like oh no it's two marlins here we go um but, <sighs> and it looked and I was like are they fighting what is that but actually it was the tail fin and the main fin of the shark zooming towards the boat the back of the boat oh. And then it just rose out the water, like jaws emerging out of the water. And I was like, seriously, oh my God, it's a shark. It's like two meters behind the boat. But a couple of days later, I got into the water to clean the boat. Uh-huh. And there were these huge fish following the boat because of the barnacles that were underneath. And I wonder whether the shark was coming for something that had been following me. So, yeah. Oh. Did you have like everybody's worst nightmare? <laughs> the Jaws generation all going, oh my yeah. God. Well, I froze and like gently pulled my oars in because I I think because I trained in Portugal and I had a whole conversation there about the fact that there'd been orca attacks on boats and they were always like, bring as much in from the water as you can and have the boat as still as possible and and so I sort of went into that routine of like put everything away and sit still. And then I was like, I want a boat. What's it going to do to me? Unless it's literally going to attack the boat, in which case I'll just go into the cabin. You know, I'm fine. <laughs> then it, it sort of swam around the boat and then it came back 
behind me again and I stood up and took a video and, and had a proper look at it. But I still don't know what kind of shark it is, which I need to send a photo to someone and see if they can decipher. Oh, my word. How exciting. And then and what were you just saying there about uh, the wildlife and the, and the difference in the ocean? That's what I wanted to ask you. When you say it's different, do you mean in colour, in mood, in yeah, all of atmosphere? That. Yeah, there were some days where you have big blue rolling waves that sort of sit around you and put when you're in the trough of that, you can't see anything. And then they raise you up and you can see for miles and miles to the horizon. Or you'll have days where it's slightly flatter, but maybe it's a completely different colour. I really noticed actually towards Barbados, there was a, a point where the water just totally changed colour. It became mm. much more green and it's not any shallower. So I don't know why that happens. Or there were days where the weather was not so good, where the water would be quite greyish. And mm. with the white caps on top, it was like a little little mountain range. You know, it looks completely <laughs> different, but just, again, stunning. You know, the top of the waves as they break in the middle of the ocean and it's crisp, like glacial looking water. It's just so beautiful. Oh, incredible. And in terms of other uh, life forms out there, did you have any near misses? Did you see any big tankers? And Yeah, I saw so many tankers. I hated seeing the tankers because they'd mm. come up on your charts and then you'd be like, oh no, <laughs> please don't come anywhere near me. But I would always radio through, check they could see me on AIS. They were all fine. I had one tanker come quite close and I was like, please, could you adjust your course? He was like, we understand you're worried we're going to squash you. I was like, <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> please adjust your course. Um, and then I had a yacht pass me on day nine who radioed through and said, oh, we just crossed your bow and we were intrigued to know what kind of vessel you are and had a good chat with them. Aww. But other than that, I didn't see anything until the day before I finished uh, and all my alarms were going off. And I looked on the charts and I was like, okay, according to this, I'm in the middle of three boats and I can't see them. And then it mm. continued and I was like, okay, I'm in the middle of six boats and I, and I can't see anything. And therefore they must either be fishing vessels or small yachts, which is why I can't spot them on the horizon. Mm. Because a tanker, I think because you don't see anything man-made, as soon as a tanker would appear on the horizon, you're aware of it quicker than you mm. expect because of the straight lines and the unnatural nature of it mm -hmm. so I was like where are these boats and eventually it transpired they were like fishing pots that have a AIS on them so a GPS tracker yeah go back and find them and I was like what what are the flipping chances I've managed to row straight through the middle <laughs> of these six fishing pots you can see it there's a screenshot of it on my Instagram page um so that my alarms went off solidly for like four hours and I didn't want to turn oh. AIS off, obviously. So no, yeah, apart from that, I didn't see anything pretty much. And in terms of the, you know, you're talking about the AIS and you talked earlier about talking to the boat builders and the weather guy and all these sorts of things, even though you were out there on your own and you had to physically get yourself across on your own, did you feel like you had an amazing support system on the boat and on land. Yeah, I worked hard to put together the team that I felt was right and they were just incredible. So I had Simon Rowell doing my weather routing who is the meteorologist for Team GB and his, he's just 
brilliant. I would recommend him to anyone that was doing an ocean crossing. And Barry Hayes did my social media, who is, he's rode the Atlantic, the Pacific and the Indian. So he's really up to speed, you know, and and he went above and beyond. He was, my tracker started going off every five minutes at one point and he was logging in and updating that. He was the one that worked out they were fishing pots. You know, he was in touch with my family all Mm. the time. He just did so much more than was asked of him. And then I had my coach, Chloe Lamphia, who's based in Chamonix, and she always is my first go-to if I need someone to put my head straight. Mm-hmm. So I to her whilst I was on the water. And, you know, I think it's testament to the work I'd done with her that I didn't feel the need to talk to her all the time because my body did hold up really well, but we'd worked mm. very hard to get to that point before we set off. Yeah, so I had those three in a WhatsApp group with Dawn Wood, who owns the boat that I was using, and my mum and another friend who's rowed an ocean. And they were such a solid unit. And yeah, I think you feel immensely selfish whilst you're out there because, and Mm. I've spoken to athletes about this since I got back, you you have to be your own priority in order to survive. You know, your your only focus Mm. is yourself. And you put aside everything that's going on on land and I was very clear that I didn't want to know any news whilst I was out there I didn't want to Mm. hear any bad news and that meant things like my mum got COVID a few weeks before I finished Mm. and was really nervous about whether she was going to be able to be in Barbados she also lost Mm. one of her friends whilst I was out there and they have to park all of that and deal as well as dealing with the stress of the fact that you're in this circumstance and supporting you and and I, it really took me by surprise how selfish I felt in, in those circumstances. And I, I think it would put me off wanting to do an expedition as big as that again, because it's it's really hard on the people around you. But yeah, I just could not have asked for a better team. Amazing. And when you came back, I assume nobody made you feel like that. That was you f- making you feel like that. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. And when you talked about the meteorologist, now I, because I've, I've, as I told you on my, our last chat, I like a bit obsessed with ocean rowing and books and so on. Talk us through a little bit about how much help and what that means to someone who's out on the ocean having a meteorologist look around everything that's going on. Yeah, so I actually did a meteorology two day meteorology course with Simon before I set off, so that I understood what his what systems he was using when he was sending me the updates and what information was useful for me to feed back to him. And he would send me a report every morning telling me how many miles I'd covered the day in the last 24 hour period on what course, you know, what bearing I'd held against what bearing we were aiming for. And he'd send me what the satellite image was showing in terms of cloud or whether I was likely to have squalls, what the trade winds were doing that day and for the coming days so I could look at power conservation if necessary or anticipate bigger weather coming through if I needed to prepare for that. Mm. He also gave me a report on the current, which I thought was really helpful, especially once you get towards Barbados. And then he'd give me a recommended waypoint to go to, a recommended bearing, and then usually a bit of chat from land, you know, something interesting <laughs> for me to read. And then his his constant phrase was maintenance and fuel, which was make sure you look after yourself, make sure you're eating and make sure you're looking after the boat. Mm. 
and I, you know, he was open to me sending back questions or feeding back information about what I was seeing on the ocean. And he's not there to autopilot you across. You know, there were days mm. where I'd be like, okay, well, that course is a bit difficult because to come this south, I'm rowing side on into four meter waves. So I'm actually going to have to come up on my bearing a little bit. And yeah, but yeah, he was just, he's so knowledgeable. Mm. And did you like the stats? Because I mean, obviously they're absolutely vital. Like, you know, this yeah. is how far you've come. This is what, but I've done events with people who, that the stats freak them out a bit. Like they just would, you know, ah, sounds a bit of a stupid thing because you needed them. But did you find it motivating to hear the stats or did sometimes you think, oh my God, is that all I've done? I think because of the distances I was covering, I just never felt like that. And I sort of set off on, on the first day I had, as I rode out of Tenerife, I had flat water and a light, very light headwind because we worked on a 4am to 4am, 24 hour period. Mm. So from midday till 4am, I rode, I think like 42 miles into a headwind. And I was like, Mm. I can do that. Then I can hold record pace if I keep rowing like this. So within the first Mm. couple of days, as I then saw as the wind became favorable and I saw the miles I was putting out, I was like, I could get the record if I can keep this up. And Mm. I started to calculate it down into, okay, I want to hit 60 miles a day, which means per shift, I need to do this, which means I need to be rowing at this average pace, which means I almost use the stats to compartmentalize and look at what I needed to do per eight hour. I always broke the day down into three eight hour blocks. And I was like, okay, well in this eight hour block, I need to have rowed x number of miles to hit what i want to today so i really got into those stats like i had a massive (laughs) log in my cabin of how many miles i'd done how many miles ahead of record pace that put me Mm. what i needed to maintain you know but i would say the only thing that freaks me out was in the last week or two of the row the weather started to pick up you know i had calmish first few weeks very hectic middle section and then it it eased off and then there was a period where it looked as though it was going to get big again and I I mentally couldn't deal with that I was like Mm. I can't go back to that place I was in in week three like it almost broke me I can't do that again so Mm. I look and I'm sure when I go back and (laughs) write up all my notes to Simon they're like but what do you mean am I going to have 28 knots of wind again like what's the weather doing is it going to get big again that was all I cared about because I knew I just hadn't got it hadn't got it in me to go through that again so and I was really nervous that I might just blow past Barbados <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a disaster about, but I was genuinely so concerned about oh, my yeah. ability to get into Barbados if the weather was huge yeah I mean I've I've read that in ocean rowing books before because obviously you have a bearing you have your your constant adjustments and your you know your targets but it gets more complicated when you get closer to land anyway yeah. with yeah. with other other vessels and making sure you don't just ram right into a rock into a cliff yeah <laughs> so yeah no I can imagine yeah and then helpfully I arrived in pitch darkness when I got to Barbados <laughs> So that didn't help, but I had a, a support boat that came and met me off North Point and saw me around the west coast of Barbados down to Port St. Charles. So very fortunate to have those guys. And talking about finishing in Barbados, how was the the finish, the stepping off the boat? Was it everything you thought it would be or was it completely different? I 
think it was a <laughs> bit more chaotic than I thought it would be. <laughs> because so we were rowing down the west coast and the wind was completely offshore. So I was being mm. blown out from the coast. And actually the strangest thing is I saw Barbados 24 hours before I got there and I Nuts. felt so emotional when I saw land. I was like, I cannot believe I've done it's making me emotional talking about it. I was like, I can't believe I've done this. Like, and also I can't believe it's finally going to be over. <laughs> I'm going to be safe and I can stop feeling constantly stressed. But I rode around North Point and as I approached land, I was like, well, everyone always says you can smell land and, you know, I can't smell it. That's untrue. <laughs> but it was because I was not downwind. And as soon as I rode around the North Point and became downwind of land, you, the smell of land hits you so hard it's bizarre like you just haven't had that for six weeks and then all of a sudden it's all you can smell like what it's like uh, earthy almost like spicy I don't know how to describe it just yeah I'd have to probably work on putting that into a way that (laughs) translate but just very noticeably different to what you've Mm. had anyway and so we're rowing down the coast and they were like, you're blowing offshore, you're blowing quite far out, we need to keep you further into land. And I was having to hand steer because my autopilot wouldn't hold. I came through a big set of breakers and didn't realise that everybody on the support boat was actually throwing up. Oh, no! <laughs> and, and I was obviously used to it, but came through some big breaker waves on North Point and then down the coast and they said, oh, we want you to row under this jetty and there's a huge pier that comes out from the concrete factory. And I was like, guys, (laughs) I did six driving tests. I don't think I'm your gal for rowing under a concrete (laughs) jetty in the dark after four hours sleep in the last two days. (laughs) And and we got further along and he was like, okay, I think you're safe enough to come around it. I was like, yeah, I think we all, that's a great decision for everybody. Um, So (laughs) rowed around there and then, actually had to stop them and ask them to look the other way so I could go for a quick pee. (laughs) And then uh, we approached the marina and I actually found a video of it this week and it it really gets me because I'm chatting to them on the boat about the fact that the marina lights, the red and green lights are the other way around in the Americas. So they were asking Uh, me to plug the green light and I was like, okay, which side of the entrance is that on in here? And as we're talking, you can just hear all my friends and family cheering from from the marine. <laughs> they make me cry. It's it's just so incredible to <laughs> to come back to land and see like all the people that you care about. But we pulled into the marina, and they were like, "Okay, you need to go to this pontoon." And then my brother was there, and I threw him a line from my boat. And he was like, oh, I can't take it. I was straight into sibling bickering. I was like, I just rode across an ocean. You can't pick up this line. Like, help me out here. And he was like, no, none of us are allowed to touch you until you've touched land yourself unassisted for the record. So I was like, well, this would have been useful to know in advance. (laughs) Anyway, got hold of land. Then they took the boat, gave me a cuddle. And then they were like, oh, you actually need to be over here now. You know, you're not mooring the boat on this first pontoon. So I had to row around Um, and they were trying to direct me in the dark. 
and there was like flash photography going off and it's just so overwhelming and so confusing and everyone's shouting instructions at you that it was not my, you know, I think you pride yourself when you get good at using a boat that you can bring it into a marina and and land it, mm. you know, in a smooth, professional-looking manner. And that was the opposite of what happened when I arrived. <laughs> <laughs> but I also then rode up to where I did need to be. And as I was approaching, I always thought you'd, like, pull in and then someone would help you off the boat. And, and as I was pulling in, I was looking at my friends and family thinking, there is no one there that knows how to tie up a boat. <laughs> So I, I pulled in and very quickly jumped straight off and tied the boat up myself. And so before I knew it, I was on land and, you know, we had to wait there a little while because you couldn't, you couldn't technically clear customs in the marina I was in during COVID. So we'd had special consideration through the government in Barbados and mm. they'd arranged for immigration to come, but they couldn't get there till 7am and I arrived at five. So we hung around down by the marina for a while and had some champagne that the pilot mm. on my family's plane over to Barbados had given them when they found out what I was Aww. doing. Yeah, it was just like my friends and family really made that whole, that, you know, they made it what it was because it was just so incredible to to have that fanfare, which if had I gone last year rather than being postponed, just wouldn't have had. So I think I was extra grateful for for being able to have people there. And the locals in Barbados are just incredible mm. people. Like, you know, there were some locals that had driven up from the South Coast to be there. And wow. well, it was just brilliant. And how was it? You know, you were just saying earlier how it was people were shouting instructions at you and, and so on. How was it actually having actual live voices coming back at you and in multiples after all that time on your own? I think the, the saving grace there was a, I've met the support boat. So I was mm. with the support boats for about three hours before I finished. And I think that provided the perfect slow integration back into being around people. And we'd been chatting the whole way back. And so it was perhaps not as stark a contrast as just pulling into the marina and hearing voices, but hearing my friends' voices, because, you know, you couldn't not hear those guys. <laughs> <laughs> that was just great you know seeing my mum for the first time because I knew how mm. how much I'd put on her and how much she did whilst I was on the water to help with the campaign or mm. basically step in to manage my life you know she's like dealing with my accountants and things <laughs> yeah. at one point but yeah it's it is really overwhelming and again I don't think I've really taken the time to sit and process all of that because every time I talk about it it makes me really emotional yeah no, that that's uh, that's very obvious. You've made me very emotional, and I'm just <laughs> listening to you. Unbelievable. Do you, you know you started sport reasonably late in life? Not as late as me, but later. Yeah. And I don't know about you. I've always sort of, even despite all the things I've managed to do, I still kind of don't really see myself as sporty. But that's not how other people see me. Do you? Uh, do you believe it now? Do you believe I'm sporty? I can do I can do anything. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I sort of felt I think I knew I had that in my wheelhouse before I did it because I wouldn't have signed up otherwise. Mm. And I think I first really felt like that. The two times I've ever really felt like that was after I did my first half marathon when I first got mm. into sport and then after I climbed the Mont Blanc. But 
it's a strange thing because I think with ocean rowing, you spend two or three or four years in my case around loads of o- other ocean rowers and it almost mm. normalizes what you've done because mm. you know other people that have done it and it's only coming back to the UK or when I did the school visits in Barbados and you see it reflected back to you what other people think of it that you mm. realize the magnitude of it and in terms of what it means to you because you you told me before that you wanted to do it and there was obviously the opportunity for the record what is the biggest achievement for you is it the record is it the doing it is it the four years that it's taking you to get there what what is what is the thing or is it too soon have you not quite managed to deal with that yet I honestly think the thing I'm proudest of and it was probably the same before I set off is having kept it going during everything that's been thrown in the way of, you know, the pandemic and the financial implications of that, the need to completely redefine my working life, my home life, to to be able to keep this project alive, I mm. think shows just as much resilience as it does to sit and row across an ocean. So that's the thing I'm proudest of. And, I, you know, I think that's it's completely changed my work structure. It's put me in a position now where I'm, you know, in a senior point in my career and able to do that job, but also do that job with the flexibility to also continue the work that I've been doing. So, you know, I've had a number of speaking opportunities come up since I got back to land and I've signed with a a speaking agency and, and that's, a whole different avenue I want to pursue that I'm able to also fit around my legal career because I Mm. was forced to find a solution to being able to work and do this project. And that I know will give me the capacity and the the time to continue doing the work I'm doing around lobbying bodies to change policies, to change sport. So I think that's fundamentally what I'm really proud of. And the record is an incredible thing to have and, my Guinness certificate actually arrives today. I got the UPS notification today. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's, they're one and the same, aren't they? Getting a record gives you a greater platform to be able to do the work, which is the thing you were most mm. at and the reason you did it in the first place. So I don't think anyone should ever set out just to chase a record and crossing mm. an ocean is insanely difficult whether that's because you have huge Mm. weather and do it in 40 days or because you have light weather and you're out there for 80 days you know I have so much respect for anyone that does it that that I think the record really is just the the cherry on the cake Mm. and in terms of let's talk about why you did it because obviously there was a lot around you've raised a lot of money for women in sport and I want you to tell me about that but you know you wanted to show that there are opportunities for women to do anything. And, you know, you said in your last interview, you didn't come from a privileged background. This is, you know, everything you've done, you've, you know, you've worked for it yourself, including this four years of hard, hard slog and all the setbacks. Tell me a little bit about women in sport and tell me how you feel like that will make a difference to girls and women that you're talking to. I think, well, to start with, yeah, I've, I set off to do it to, raise funds through a charity called Women in Sport who are based in the UK, who do a lot of work in trying to in- improve gender equality within sports. And my aim is to raise 50,000 and we're just past 
halfway with that. And then I've just started planning an event that I'm going to look to host this autumn to try and continue that fundraising. But I think I felt that there's so much messaging and narrative out there about opportunities and people being able to do things. And I actually wanted to do something that was incredibly difficult to prove that point. You know, it's hard to go in and talk to people about anything being possible without showing them that that's the case. And actions speak so much louder than words. And I think an ocean row alone in particular is incomprehensible to so many people. And yet Mm. I, as a rower who wasn't sporty, was able to do that. And and there's many facets to that. I think that's also the fundraising element of it. You know, I was talking to someone the other day about venture capital fundraising. And I think as women, there's so many elements of that that we perhaps don't feel like are within our reach, whether that's setting up your own business, which I did to manage the project through mm. doing a huge expedition raising funds, investments, all of those things. And and it is all possible. And don't get me wrong, it was <laughs> immensely hard work. Mm. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd want to go through it again, but but it is all possible. And every opportunity is out there if you're willing to take it. And I'm not suggesting that we're on a level playing field for that. I think you certainly have to work harder than others depending on your circumstances sometimes, but, mm-hmm. but I did it and, and it would have been a very uninspiring message if I'd walked away from that project because of COVID and, and that would have been the easy thing to do. But I just really hope that it demonstrates that we really are capable of so much more than we think we are. And that applies to, to men and women. You know, we so often self-limit in a way that's not accurate you know we we are capable of so so much more than we think we are and I would hope it inspires people to go out and and try and and push themselves but to also recognize that the narrative around women being weaker fragile is just so inaccurate in a modern world and and that's the work that I really want to continue now that I'm back on land so Prior to leaving, I'd been lobbying Ironman to introduce a deferral policy for pregnancy and maternity, and and they agreed to do that. And that's amazing. I think is the first one of its kind for an organised sports event, but I don't know that for sure. Um, Since I've been back, I've reached out to a number of other bodies and, you know, highlighted this point and asked them to consider the same thing. And, And I think that sort of what I need to figure out now is how I use the platform that I've created to best drive that change, whether that's perhaps looking at it from a more political stance or it's that pro bono legal work or, yeah, I'm not sure that mm. on that how that will look going forwards, but that's sort of where the, the true passion lies for me. And I think everyone's question is what's next. And mm-hmm. for me, it's not, I'm going to row another ocean. It's I'm going to do this work, which is what I set out to do in the first place. Oh, extraordinary. And how can we, how can people listening uh, contribute or help or, or support your fundraiser? Uh, you can Google GoFundMe Victoria Evans, which will bring up the, the campaign, or it's linked on the website, which is seachangesport.com, or it's linked on my social channels, which are all at seachangesport. Okay. Well, I will put it in the 
in the show notes as well and on social media so people can go and contribute straight away and you'll let us know about what happens, what you're planning in October. I wanted to just ask you two things. When we spoke the last time, I said, what are you going to tell me when you come back? You wished you are, how did, how did, I can't remember what I asked you, but your answer was you wanted to know that you had given it your everything and there was nothing really that you could have handled better. Yeah. Do you feel like that? Absolutely feel like <laughs> I think I gave it more than I even <laughs> more than I even knew I could. So yeah, I don't feel like there was any stone left unturned in terms of preparation or knowledge, you know, sourcing or effort. That must feel pretty special because it's not very many times in life and in some for in some people's cases never that you can truly 110% say that there was nothing, you left it all out there, there was nothing more you could have done. Yeah, and I think that's actually, for me personally, more the reason why the record is important because I can step back from that project satisfied, having ticked every box that I wanted to achieve and not feel as though if, but if I'd you know, done slightly differently this or there's nothing more I could have wanted to get from it and that gives you a peace of mind that I think I would have as someone who's very competitive I would have really struggled with had it not been Mm. the case and the last question I had was and I'm not sure whether it's perhaps too soon for you to answer this because you're still processing and it's such an enormous amount to get your head around but I've spoken to ocean rowers and you know people who've done exhibitions before and but especially ocean rowers they seem to have like and a pardon the very obvious pun but a sea change in the way that they see life like how it has changed you you know I've heard you know little things don't bother me so much anymore I have a more adventurous spirit and can you say with any clarity yet how you feel it's changed you yeah I think I think a lot of that change had already happened prior to leaving because you know the the real big leaps of faith were quitting my job when I hadn't raised all the money or stepping out of the you know modern day addiction that is a nine to five monthly salary and Mm. those changes had sort of already happened and I'd got to a place where I think I now have the knowledge that life circumstances can change and plans can change and things always work out you'll always find a way to make them work out but I think the biggest shift for me personally is I set out on signing up to do this, chasing adventure and chasing everything that I got out of it. And actually during that adventure found that really what the only thing I really truly craved was all of the small things, not these huge Mm. periods of time away. Like all I wanted was to be around the people that I care about and you know, life happens in between all those big moments, doesn't it? And Mm. it's given me a sense of not satisfaction, like, uh, like calmness almost. I don't feel the need to go out gunning for these huge adventures at the moment. I just feel like I'm really content. It's given me a lot of clarity around what I want out of this next period of my life. And that's probably to meet someone to share that life with and to, settle down a bit and I still want a life full of adventure but 
perhaps with a family in tow or you know it's I think mm. it's just given mm. me a very different I don't have that constant <laughs> inner turmoil pushing me to chase all these big goals I think is the I don't know what the word for that is it will come to me as soon as we stop recording <laughs> <laughs> is it contentment yeah it is a contentment yeah I think I'm really content with life and with who I am as a person I think you know that's a lot of what people chase in adventure mm. is self-discovery and you are forced so hard to face up to yourself when you spend 40 days alone in that kind of circumstance and and I came out of that okay feeling okay about things so yeah it and is you came out feeling feeling okay about yourself and uh and because you know we we all sit with the things we don't really like about ourselves and do you feel that you came out thinking I'm all right actually yeah and it's hard work to do it's so hard to sit with yourself and I think loads of people never do it you know they're either they never live alone or they never spend time alone and and it's a very extreme example on this on the Mm -hmm. ocean because you you also don't have all the decisions of day-to-day life. You know what you're wearing, you know what you're eating, you know what you're doing <laughs> for the day, you know where you're going. So yeah. there's no, it's a, it's a. No distractions. It's to think that you can't replicate on land, I would say. And, mm. and you really think about everything and process and, you know, dream. And I just think that's a great opportunity to, to have and, gives you a lot of clarity Mm. oh Tori I'm oh I'm so emotional just listening to you it's unbelievable what you've achieved and not just the row as you say the the four hard hard years it's taken you to get to this point and I you know I've heard about it before and I and I to the best of my ability I understand it's not just about the six weeks you're on the water so I heartily congratulate you and thank you so much for your time because I'm sure you are being pulled in a thousand directions right now. It's been a pleasure and an honour to speak to you and hear all about it and just a massive congratulations. Oh, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to share the story. I think that's, you know, you say thanks for my time, but thank you for yours. Well, um, hopefully we will actually catch up and meet in person one of these days. Uh, But until then, thank you and uh, all the very best for the next steps. Thank you. Speak soon. Thanks for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that. I'll be back next week with some more great chat with another amazing woman. Bye-bye.